the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We've often, I think, on the topic of taxes as Americans, drawn the conclusion that historically it was things like the Boston Tea Party and the sense of taxation without representation that spurred the American Revolution and brought America to where she is today. My next guest, though, will suggest, mm, not quite true. Played a role, to be sure. But in fact, instead of the revolution sparking, uh, sparked by high taxes, it would instead be outrage against British attempts to suppress God-given, those so-called inalienable rights that we see articulated in the Constitution that we have today. Some insights now as we're joined by the director of the Center for Military and Veteran Studies at Coastal Carolina University in South Carolina. He's also the author of 16 best-selling books. His latest is entitled, By the Hand of Providence. How Faith Shaped the American Revolution. And Rod Gregg, thanks so much for being with us tonight. Thank you. Glad to be here. What headed you down this trajectory? I mean, obviously you spent a lot of your life in the arena of, of looking at the Battle of Gettysburg in one of your books. You, you, you've been very much focused on the founding of our nation and, and the roots that we have. And, and I think, to be sure, most of us, certainly people listening to a program like this, see the faith-based roots of our nation. But to take it a step further now and, and suggest that as much as we've typically understood the American Revolution to be sparked by taxation without representation actually coming down to something a lot more valuable, quite frankly. Uh, this, this, I think, is some new news for folks. Well, I think it's, uh, it's an old story that needs to be re- retold because it's been uh, neglected in our day and has been uh, largely forgotten uh, by, uh, by our nation. But it it's really uh, goes to the heart of who we are and, and what we became as a nation. And the American Revolution was a faith-based revolution because Americans were a faith-based people, and that faith was a biblical one. So the things that you mentioned, uh, taxation, uh, lack of representation in Parliament, uh, events that uh, were somewhat of a catalyst like the Boston Tea Party, other protests, all those things were uh, had a role, and all of them uh, were kind of a dominoes falling, but uh, they were symptomatic of something deeper, and that is that the American people, as, as you put it well, um, American people were, were biblical. The colonial American people and the Americans at the time of the Revolution were uh, biblically literate. Now, it doesn't mean that everybody was devout. You had the, the devout, you had the nominal, you had the uninterested but the, the American thought at the time was uh, firmly founded on the Judeo-Christian worldview. Uh, the culture was um, predominantly Protestant. It was overwhelmingly Christian, and it was almost universally Judeo-Christian in its approach. And that was the foundation of American culture, law, and government. So when these events occurred, these controversial events, over a period of time, Increasing numbers of uh, Americans came to to view King George the Third, uh, 
and Parliament as attempting to usurp the higher law of God and to uh, force the law of man instead. They saw them as uh, usurping uh, what they called inalienable or God-given rights, rights to life, to liberty, to what they called the, uh, the freedom to pursue happiness. And they came to view, eventually, uh, in great numbers, uh, King George III as a tyrant. That's why uh, American troops marched off to war in the Revolution under battle flags adorned with the, ba- with the slogan that said, Resistance to tyrants is obedience to God. You you take the title of your new book, By the Hand of Providence, um, from a quote from George Washington. Um, and I think as we think of him as, uh, you know, one of the key founding fathers, uh, uh, the first president of the United States, although there was somebody in there actually for a couple of days or something. I forget all the details on that, but 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 widely recognized as the first president of the United States. Uh, as we see the role that he played, Valley Forge, all the way through the list, give us some insights in terms of this man in particular and the the role that his faith played in taking the risk that he did in the founding of our nation. Well, and some people have made the the case, uh, I think, kind of a weak one, the case uh, in recent uh, years that the presidents of the Continental Congress uh, in those days before the Constitution, during the, the time of the Articles of Confederation, were in a sense presidents, but they were not president of the United States. Uh, Washington was the first. It's, in, it's really, you really cannot overemphasize the influence of George Washington. Now, uh, the American Revolution was really taken forward by the American people. They're often overlooked. And the leaders reflected the worldview, the faith of the American people. So you had the American people, you had their leaders in the Continental Congress, and then you had uh, George Washington, who was really heads above all others. Um, and he was greatly influential in inspiring his officers and troops to stay in this uh, this movement, to stay in this revolution. And he also inspired the American people. And it wasn't because he was a good general, and he became a good general. He became a great strategist, a good tactician, but he grew into that. What inspired the American people about Washington was his character. And that character was based on his personal faith. And that faith was clearly biblical. And that faith. Talk, talk to me about your research in terms of the influence on that faith, on the decisions and the risks that he took personally um, in the American Revolution. Well, Washington was um, a, a low-church Anglican uh, who was uh, very serious about his faith. He was quiet about his faith. He wasn't the kind of man who would sit around, like Sam Adams, for instance, and, 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 and uh, engage or lead a dinnertime theological discussion. Uh, he was a low church Anglican. He was. Uh, he didn't speak in uh, the vernacular of a 21st century evangelical. Although his doctrine, uh, personal doctrine that he believed as a as an Anglican, was certainly uh, uh, in in that category of being a historic evangelical um, Orthodox Christian doctrine. He was certainly not a deist, as some have claimed. Uh, There were very few deists, actually, involved among uh, the American people and and among the founders, their leaders. Uh, The um, the historian, there was a historian uh, in the 20th century, P. 
Perry Miller, who spent his life studying the colonial era. He really was a great expert on American colonial uh, life in the colonial era. He described it well. He said that deism was what he called an exotic plant that never took root in America because of the overwhelming influence of the biblical worldview, that Judeo-Christian worldview. Uh, so a deist was one who, who believed in an impersonal God, almost like a force, uh, a force-type creator who uh, launched and jump-started his creation and then walked away from it. That's not the God that George Washington believed in. And uh, he was consistent in both his private writings, which were voluminous, and also in his, uh, his public statements, which were many, and consistent in expressing uh, that... Uh, faith, which was clearly, without question, a biblical faith. And so in, uh, in, in Washington's uh, decision-making uh, and the things he did, the things he didn't do, really governed by this. You look, for instance, um, he stands in real contrast to some of the leadership demonstrated by British commanders uh, who went into areas sometimes, uh, particularly in the South, where um, uh, they could have probably, had they handled the war right, could probably have uh, Americans were all reluct generally reluctant revolutionaries, and the British in some areas could have uh, kindled a, a great deal of support. But their behavior, their conduct, uh, really alienated people, and it made uh, Americans in droves go over to the side of the Patriot movement. Well, Washington was contrast to that in the way that he treated his enemies, the way he treated loyalist civilians. He made sure that they were not taken advantage of. He made sure that they weren't robbed and plundered like the British did. There was a real discipline there. He also uh, 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 routinely observed victories by holding worship services. Uh, he encouraged his troops to observe the national days of prayer that the Continental Congress called, and there were many of them during the Revolution. Uh, he at one time uh, urged his troops to conduct themselves in his words uh, and with their behavior as becoming a Christian soldier. Uh, he made sure that uh, the army was equipped with chaplains. He took that very seriously and encouraged his men to, uh, to pick chaplains who were strong in their faith. Uh, so you see consistently through Washington's words and his behavior this character, and this character was a reflection of his personal faith. If you've just joined our conversations tonight, Rod Gregg is with us. He, of course, is the director of the Center for Military and Veteran Studies at Coastal Carolina University in South Carolina. A new book entitled By the Hand of Providence, How Faith Shaped the American Revolution. We'll come back to more of our look at the role of faith in the founding of our nation as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We have been investigating the faith-centered foundation of the American resistance as found inside the pages of this new book, By the Hand of Providence. By the way, for you homeschooling parents out there in particular, I mean, the book is great for anybody, but homeschooling parents... You're looking for a great book that can be a wonderful teaching tool. Uh, you're going to want to go out and pick up a copy of this. Howard is the publisher available to bookstores throughout the Bay Area. Those one or two still exist, am I right? I'm just checking. And, of course, through Amazon.com. Its author is with us tonight, Rod Gregg. Rod is the director of the Center for Military and Veteran Studies at Coastal Carolina University in South Carolina. By the way, a number 
of phenomenal books that he has penned down through the years, over 16 of them now all told, on topics of the Battle of Gettysburg, uh, Civil War, on and on the list goes. So check out anything uh, written by Rod. Again, G-R-A-G-G, if you're going to Google his last name. Rod, it's curious. We talk about the notion oftentimes that that some will report um, a number of the Founding Fathers as having been deists, I find it curious because if we look at the actions of these men and the great risk that they took, the personal sacrifice, it would seem to me that it would take an individual of greater character um, and, and, and a sense of, of higher calling than just somebody who casually acknowledged the existence of deity out there. It seems to me that most of the actions of these men in the founding days of this nation were people that were willing to sacrifice for a greater good because they knew the God that they served. Well, that's exactly right. You have to remember when we talk about uh, the founding fathers, the leaders of the American people in the colonial era at the time of the American Revolution, that um, they reflected also the worldview of the American people, or they wouldn't have been holding office. And the worldview of the American people, without question at that time, was a faith-based. It was the Judeo-Christian worldview. And it's no accident that the Declaration of Independence uh, begins with what it calls a uh, self-evident truth that all men are created equal and are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, namely life, liberty, and, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, the Declaration of Independence had to be acceptable to the American people who were going to live with it, and in many cases going to die for it. And the signers knew that, and they knew they had to have biblical justification for something as big as an independence movement or a revolution. And so that's why the Declaration of Independence is laced with the language of faith. Half of it makes the case against King George III, because Americans came to, to view him in great numbers, as did these crafters of the Declaration, as uh, a leader uh, who was unfit to be a ruler of free people because they had come to view him as a tyrant who wanted and uh, intended to usurp the higher law of God and replace it with the law of man. And Americans, uh, being biblically literate, were very conscious of the whole biblical doctrine of submission to authority. And so they were reluctant revolutionaries. And not until uh, until the great numbers of them came to believe that uh, he was attempting to uh, usurp or take uh, authority over the higher law of God did they move into the ranks of uh, revolutionaries. And uh, they then came to view him and Parliament to a lesser degree as tyrants who were, uh, who were seeking to repress these inalienable or God-given rights, and they believed they had a biblical and moral duty to resist that. Now, as far as uh, the leaders and those who are deists, that really is something that has been uh, greatly exaggerated uh, in our day, and it really probably reflects more about... Uh, where American culture is today than it does the historical evidence of that. Time. Well, to be sure, I mean the attempt, I think, too, to uh, to take God and faith out of the equation, to kind of neutralize America's stand historically on the position of faith, uh, and and kind of eradicate our faith-based roots. I mean, let's face it: if if you can eliminate that at the foundation, it's much easier then to move forward in uh, not only 
creating a religion-neutral America, but in some corners even a religion, religious-hostile America. Well, you know, the great unreported story of our day, uh, of the last uh, 50 years, is the shift in the national consensus or the shift in the worldview of America's leadership from a historic, traditional uh, Judeo-Christian worldview that holds that God is the authority over all things and God should be the central focus of all things, to a man-centered, secular, or humanistic worldview that says that man, not God, is the authority over all things, and that man, not God, should be the center of all focus. Now, that's a seismic shift, and, uh, and you know why it's uh, having a trickle-down effect in the, in the American population. You can see uh, that the leadership in America, in virtually all fields, has really shifted in that direction in, in the field of... Uh, uh, business, uh, law, government, uh, entertainment, uh, popular media, the culture, popular culture, the, the media, the news media, uh, movies, television, um, health care. It's shifted from this God-centered worldview to a man-centered worldview. And then when you have something like that happens, it means that those who are uh, responsible for conveying information have uh, are uncomfortable with things of faith, particularly of biblical faith. They are um, uh, they don't understand it in some cases. Uh, they're uncomfortable with it. Sometimes they really resist it or even hostile to it. And so, for those reasons, I think that the uh, the fundamental foundation of America's origins as a nation, which was faith based, and that faith was the Judeo Christian worldview, has um, has really uh, almost been uh, it's been neglected it's uh, and, and it's to a point that most Americans today or at least many Americans today don't know the story yeah and, and sadly enough and of course the irony is we see the manner in which this is demonstrated the results of which are demonstrated in society and the world around us every single day I mean look at the disintegration of what's going on in our country morally and economically uh, there's proof positive and even more so than what ought to be a firmer drive to return back to the understanding of our faith-based roots um, the 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 acceptance of the reality that colonial America was built on a foundation of biblical faith and that any time you waver from it you are going to be open for some pretty scary times, which we find ourselves in these days. By the hand of providence, how faith shaped the American Revolution, and hopefully will be the guide to the next one. That's my subtitle, my sub-subtitle. Uh, Rod Gregg, its author, our guest on this segment of Lifeline. Again, a number of great resources that Rod has penned down through the years for those interested in uh, a real, legitimate view of the faith influence on the founding of our nation. Then, too, again, for parents out there that are homeschoolers, if you're looking for great teaching uh, content, then again, Google his name, Rod Gray. You can find lots of great resources, too, all of which available on the web and through Amazon.com by the hand of Providence. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I've shared with you before my experiences in India. I always I found it fascinating to go into a Hindu temple for the very first time. 
and there's much pomp and circumstance, and you're required to take your shoes off and so on and so forth. And if you've never been in one, it's fascinating because a Hindu temple, at least the ones that we visited, was not a single altar to one god, but in fact it is a an almost large courtyard-like affair with multiple altars to multiple gods within the... The deist system of Hinduism, there's 33 million different gods. And it's amazing as you watch the priests that will do songs and incantations and writhe about on the floor and cover themselves in paint and in ashes and and go through all these machinations in an effort to try and reach out to God or a god, to try to get that god's attention, to try to get that god's appeasement. And it really is heartbreaking from a Christian perspective to walk through there and see all of this, and you can you can sense about you uh, the demonic presence all around, and the depravity of man, and it's heartbreaking because all of this effort that goes forward and try to reach up to God and somehow connect with him and appease him. And yet we know from the story of the Bible that in reality, God came down. In fact, God came down in such a fashion that he came down to get his hands dirty. We're joined now by Johnny Moore, who coincidentally is a pastor, advisor, professor of religion, and vice president of prestigious Liberty University, and author of a new book whose title initially was slightly off-putting to me. And then when I got into the book, I realized, wow, this really spells it out. His new book is called Dirty God, Jesus in the Trenches, newly published by our friends at Thomas Nelson. And uh, Johnny, great to have you on the program tonight. Thanks. I'm really glad to be with you. Your book is an interesting one because it paints a picture. You know, people sometimes talk about cheap grace and so forth. It, it it paints a picture of the idea that in every respect, really and truly, God God came down, and as he did so, he, he, he rolled up his sleeves and got his hands dirty, didn't he? Yeah, he did. And, and in so doing, Jesus busted through this concophony of praise from every religion in the world, every idea of God in all of human history that has been solely about man doing everything he can to get God's attention. And this Jesus, this dirty God, as I, as I called him in the book, decided that he was going to come down to planet Earth and he was going to come after us, despite the fact that we had made this mess. He invited himself into the mess that we made. He got dirty and he gave us the opportunity to become clean again. So that's why I, I called the book Dirty God. I wanted to reflect on the on the real beauty and transcendence of the grace of Jesus Christ. In our fallen nature, all of this is counterintuitive, isn't it? You know, it is. It, it's, you know, not natural that, that uh, you know, it, we, we aren't to other people the way God is to us in Jesus Christ. I mean, uh, we, we hold people accountable and we hold grudges, and in, in the face of justice, God is just, but what he is, is he's also a God, a God of grace. And so he wrote a story that has been the plot of 
every novel of any success and every movie that we watch, you know, everything through all of history is the same plot, this plot of redemption over and over. It's grace, and grace is gotten, and grace is given, and Jesus is the picture of that. And I think it's time we resurrect the image of this, of this idea of Jesus, the God who got dirty so the world could get clean. You know, we oftentimes will hear the picture of of grace as one that sort of paints God as being weak, that God is sort of capitulating to mankind. Well, if you can't live and abide by my laws and within the rules and regulations that I set forth, you know, even from the beginning, it wasn't a very long list. There weren't Ten Commandments. There was just one. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we couldn't even manage one, let alone the ten that we were given through Moses. And so now the idea that God would say, okay, I'm going to come up with yet another plan, and it, it ultimately kind of in the perspective of some suggesting that that it made God seem weak, but yet in your new book, Dirty God, you you wonderfully paint the picture that, in fact, uh, the notion, as we said before, of God getting his hands dirty by coming down and taking on the form of mankind is anything but a sign of weakness. Yeah, you know, the the easy thing to do would have been just to give us what we deserve. I mean, we were the ones that turned our, our back on God. But what did he do? I mean, this is this is the God who made everything. I mean, the Bible tells us that Jesus is the heir of all things. He spoke the whole world into existence. I mean, we cannot begin to fathom the wealth and the influence and the power of God. I mean, we can't even get that in our head. And yet here's God, Jesus, being born in a manger, living his first night in a feeding trough. The, the press release is sent to shepherds. I mean, he doesn't even have a place to put his head. He grows up in a village of 400 people called called Nazareth, and eventually, when he starts finally preaching this gospel that he's brought to the earth, what do they do to him? They run him out of his own village, his own friends and family. They run him out of his own village and try to throw him off of a cliff. I mean, this grace that God has given us through Jesus Christ, I mean, it, it took God's strength. Not, it's not a demonstration of weakness. It's a demonstration of a God that could suppress what we deserve in order to give us a second chance. And that's what he's been doing all through history. You know, my, my book, Dirty God, is really a book about the kindness of God, the kindness of God given to, the, uh, to us as recipients of grace, and the kindness of God that we have the opportunity to give to others as distributors of it. And it's it is a story. It is at so many levels so uncomprehensible, because I think we all have an idea about things that uh, that presidents or, or, or kings do or don't do. I mean, for example, the, the president does not drive himself anywhere. He has a security detail and a chauffeur. The president doesn't go into the kitchen and uh, start pulling things out of the refrigerator, uh, refrigerator and cook his own meals. He has a chef that does all of that. Uh, there are so many things that kings don't do, and yet all of a sudden we find this image of the king of kings, coming down and doing things that we would never expect him to do. Yeah, and the people he hung out with. I mean, mm. I think this is one of the most fascinating stories about, about Jesus, is that he chose these disciples. I mean, he, he chose these people. And you look at their stories. You know, you, you, Peter, who's, who's, you know, who speaks before he thinks, and he's rough around the edges. You've got Doubting Thomas, who's... who's you know, clearly like a pessimist. You've got James and John, and, and you've got you know, the sons of thunder. 
they called them, you, you've got all of these different personality types, these people always making mistakes. Jesus gets tired of them eventually and says, why are you being so dull? Why don't you just catch up, you know, with me? And, and I think that's part of the, the beauty of the story. I mean, Jesus came, and he could have come as, as a king. I mean, he could, have, he could have done it that way. He, he could have gone to Jerusalem or Rome. But instead, he goes to Bethlehem and Nazareth and Capernaum. And he doesn't pick the best and brightest. He picks people that are a lot like us. Mm. And, and I think that's the amazing thing about all of this. I mean, he comes, Jesus arrives in a culture where Greco-Roman gods were known for their perfection in their temples. I mean, even their physical physiques were perfect. And Jesus arrives as a God that looks a little more like men, like everyday people, on the chance that everyday people, like the people listening right now, will feel that God cares about them, and He does. That's the image of Jesus, a dirty God. And what a what a poignant way in which to to get that point across. I mean, you, you, as you were talking about the picture of the disciples and this 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 ragtag group, most of whom most most decent fathers uh, that care about their daughters would 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 hardly allow your daughter to date any of these guys, <laughs> let alone look at this group and say, as very God Himself. I have selected you to take my message of reconciliation and restitution and forgiveness to an entire world. It just defies logic at every level, and I guess it's because at the end, it it it, it most necess- necessarily takes every aspect of man out of this equation. I mean, the whole key of grace is this: the unmerited favor that God has shown toward us, that no man should be able to boast in any of this process. And it really, it really, I guess, at the end of the day, defies our understanding, doesn't it? It, it, it sure does, and what it shows us is that God saw in these disciples, you know, Jesus saw in, in these followers of his what they didn't see in themselves. So he didn't see them where they were. He, he saw where they could be, and he, he both preserved their personalities, but he also redeemed their personalities. And you see how he used the characteristics of these, these people in the, in the story of Christianity, you know, when you read it through the Bible. And one of the things that really believe the church needs to do is resurrect the the human side of Jesus. You know, we, the, the church believes and has believed for, for centuries that Jesus was fully God, he was fully divine, and he was fully human. And it's through the human side of Jesus interacting with these people that we understand how grace plays itself out in everyday life. And what we discover very quickly is that the least likely people are the people that God uses in the most profound way in his story of bringing redemption to the earth. I mean, probably the person listening even to our conversation now, it feels like they're the person least likely to be used by God to do something is maybe the most likely person. Because because our God is a God who takes joy in giving grace to people and using them in ways they can't believe. So the doubting apostles, you know, Peter, who denies Jesus three times, ends up becoming the apostle that Jesus allows to preach the Pentecost sermon when thousands of people put their faith in it. So not, not only using not, where we are. not not only using the the least likely individuals, but but just as importantly, and and I'll have you 
go into detail on this, Johnny, after the break to to help illustrate God's willingness to, to literally come down and get his hands dirty, and that is to reach out and touch into the lives of those that even other men would not do. There's a wonderful, I, I mentioned earlier about India, there's a wonderful illustration that you share at the, the start of the book, Dirty God, Jesus in the Trenches, out of India, which parallels the story we see in Mark chapter 1, and we'll get to that aspect of our conversation. With us today, pastor, advisor, professor of religion, vice president of Liberty University, he is Johnny Moore. We're talking about Dirty God, Jesus in the Trenches, newly published by Thomas Nelson, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through, of course, uh, uh, Amazon.com. You can also get more information on Johnny's website at Johnny, J-O-N-N-I-E, Johnny Moore with an E at the end there as well, dot O-R-G. Back to more of our conversation in a moment. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And back to our conversation. Johnny Moore is with us tonight. He is author of Dirty God, Jesus in the Trenches, also serves as vice president of Liberty University. You start the book out, and I, and I think it sets up a wonderful illustration um, of the whole scene going on in Mark 1 and 41. And, and I think it wonderfully helps us better understand, and, and maybe you can kind of bring this into the modern day, if you would, Johnny, just how significant it was as Jesus interacted with the leper. You know, we, we don't really understand this in our, our modern time because we, and particularly in the United States, I mean, we don't have these kinds of fear-inducing uh, diseases and to the degree that it was in the, in the first century. But um, in the first century, I mean, when, when someone had leprosy, when they arrived inside of a town, if they even came into a town, they had to carry a bell with them, and they had to ring the bell. They had to announce themselves as a leper. I mean, if you saw a leper at the end of the road, you would go grabbing your kids and run to the other direction. And so can you imagine when Jesus... And this like show-stopping moment decides that the lepers are the people he cares about. The lepers are the people that he wants to go extend his grace and his mercy to. I mean, Jesus goes and hangs out with lepers. In fact, there's this wonderful story that everybody's all, all heard about, where where, the, uh, where Mary is washing Jesus' feet with her hair. But what people don't realize very often is that story took place in the home of a guy named Simon the leper. And I think this is a wonderful demonstration of the, of the attitude that Jesus had when he came down to planet Earth. I mean, he was after those that society had rejected. He was after those that were on the, on the fringes of society. And it wasn't to the exclusion of others. I mean, he, he came for everyone. But the show-stopping moments in the Gospel, if you read them within their cultural context, is when Jesus goes to the people that no one wanted to talk to and no one cared about. Jesus knew what it was like to be rejected. He was rejected because of this message, but he reached to the rejected ones with grace and mercy and the gospel. And can you imagine that hopeless leper when finally they were healed for the power of God? I mean, this was an amazing, amazing moment. It's a wonder Jesus became quickly famous. I mean, he was the God that went and spent time with those that no one cared to spend time with. You know, it's interesting. We we see many images in world religions of men who would be as gods, 
I don't know what that this is the singular case of a god that would be as a man. I guess it is. I mean, this this Jesus story is unique in all, all of religious history. I mean, I, I talk a lot in the book about uh, my my work around the world. I, I, I have degrees in religion. I teach religion. I, I travel quite a bit. And I, I've been to the largest mosque in South Asia, and I've sat in the Dalai Lama's temple in this village he lives in in northwest India. I have, I've been to the holiest Hindu and Buddhist places in, in, in South Southeast Asia. I've studied all of these religions, and the one story of everyone that's following a different path is they're trying to get God to pay attention to them. They're ringing their bells as they go into the Hindu temples. The Sikhs have their five Ks, and the Muslims have their five pillars, and the Buddhists are meditating, and everyone is trying so hard to get God to pay attention to them. But when God named Jesus came down the planet Earth, he announced one of his names as Emmanuel. It was God with us. And where every other religious idea in history seems to be a long road that leads to a door of good works and trying harder to get God to pay attention to them, the story of Jesus is a door that leads to a long road. The way to Jesus is an easy path, because Jesus isn't the God that dropped the letter for the ladder from heaven for us to climb up. Jesus is the God that dropped the ladder from heaven for him to climb down to grab us and take us back with him. And as you point out, in so many cases of world religions, it's about either not calling attention to yourself, certainly uh, big within Hinduism, I mean, in in some cases, in some Hindu sects, uh, to even compliment um, how beautiful a child might be is looked on with, with, with great fear and embarrassment, at least that you draw the ire of a jealous God. And so the notion of trying to appease or avoid God uh, and his wrath in so many ways is, is inherent to all, virtually every major world religion. And yet here is one where it's not a matter of what we need to do for God, but rather what God has done for us. That, as Scripture reminds us, while we were yet sinners, Christ came to die for us, that through that substitutionary work on the cross, we might be able to find forgiveness and reconciliation, and then restoration of a relationship with the very creator of the universe. It's a fascinating read, and I think one that brings great perspective on this topic, even though perhaps the title you might go, wait a minute. Uh, it is true in many hands. Uh, it's amazing to see that God came down to get his hands dirty. The book called Dirty God, Jesus in the Trenches, again, newly published by Thomas Nelson, available through Amazon.com, bookstores around the Bay Area, and, of course, through Johnny's website at johnnymore.org. That's J-O-N-N-I-E-M-O-O-R-E dot org johnny it's been a delight and an education to have you with us today we'll hope to visit with you again soon thanks my, my pleasure god bless you god bless you brother there's johnny morgan vice president of liberty university dirty god jesus in the trenches well that's going to do it for this edition of lifeline thanks so much for being with us and if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend grab a copy of the lifeline podcast simply log on to kfax.com that's kfax.com for the lifeline podcast our producer is wanda sanchez i'm craig roberts till next time round remember just don't keep the faith get out there and share it and make it a great evening so long 
Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.